Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSilicast podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever-so-slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, August 4th, and this is show number 743. I'd like to start by giving a shout-out to my lovely daughter, Lindsay Tondi. It is her birthday, so happy birthday, sweetie. Anyway, Steve and I are up in Canada with all of our kids and our adorable grandson, Forbes, for a relaxing week on Lake Okanagan in British Columbia. But that will not keep me from publishing an episode of the NoSillaCast. Luckily, with some help from Ralston Bernard, Frank Petrie, Tom Merritt, Shane Jackson, and Bart, we've got a full-length show for you. I'll even chime in with some content of my own. Now, I do want to warn you, I didn't get a chance to record a chit-chat across the pond this week, so we won't have one. Next week, I'll have just come back from our trip when it's time to buckle down and work on my programming by stealth homework and get ready for the next show. But luckily, I've already got a bunch of recordings from listeners to help me with that show, too. I have to say, I'm really grateful to all of you who help out like this and allow me to have fun vacations. Now, I'll be talking about MacStock and my impressions of the event later in the show, but I wanted to tell you a little bit about my presentation first. When Mike Potter said the theme of MacStock 2019 would be create, I was disappointed because I believed I was not at all artistic or musical, so I didn't really think I was creative. Then I realized there's all kinds of creativity, and creating a podcast each week, or several of them, is a form of creativity. In my talk, I let the audience play a make-your-own-adventure game, where the audience gets to pick the adventure I've been on as a result of picking up a microphone in May of 2005. I used a really cool trick in Keynote to allow me to go on different paths within the slide deck, and I teach that trick towards the end of the talk. I really enjoyed showing the trick because I explained a few problems I had, and the audience jumps in and helps me come up with better solutions for the next time. I was trepidatious about this presentation because I wasn't teaching anything technical, so I was kind of worried people think, would think this was a fluff piece, a waste of time. I was delighted, though, to hear people say that they found it inspirational, so I guess it worked out okay. All that preamble is to tell you that Steve has posted a video of my presentation over on podfeet.com, and of course, there's a link in the show notes. My good friend and fellow Nocilla Castaway and MaxDoc attendee sent me a very short email with what he calls a tale of resurrection. I asked him to record it because if you're unlucky, you may need to remember his experience to save you someday. On our South Seas cruise, I had the misfortune to go into the sea wearing both my iPhone 8 Plus in a Mophie case and my 6S, also in a Mophie. First, the good news. The 8 Plus is sufficiently seawater resistant that it came out of it okay, but the Mophie didn't. Bad news. The 6S is not water resistant, as well as its Mophie not being water resistant. It was totally dead and contained all my underwater shots of giant clams, fish galore, etc., like that. When I got home, I went to the Apple store where they said, yep, it's dead. Boy, they were really helpful. They gave me contact information for drive savers. I talked to drive savers, and for a mere 3000 bucks, they would desolder the chips and hopefully recover the data. I would like to point out I could do another whole South Seas cruise for that kind of money. So I took the 6S to the mall, to a place called something like Skins R Us or whatever those mall kiosks are called, and the tattooed and pierced guy said to come back in half an hour. He attached a new battery and front panel to it, and lo and behold, the 6S started. 
I airdropped all the pictures from the CS 6S to my 8 Plus, and he saved the day. The cost, 50 bucks. So that's something worth remembering. Wow, uh, that's really crazy. I'm surprised they were able to do that. And maybe it wouldn't work for everybody. But like I said, maybe we should keep that in the back of our brains there that uh, maybe something like that could happen for us. I just realized that Raleigh didn't explain how he had underwater photos on that phone if that phone was not waterproof. Maybe he had it in a waterproof case earlier. And uh, then again, it doesn't explain how he ended up in the in the drink with his uh, two iPhones unintentionally. I bet there's a story behind that. Well, next up, we've got a recording by Frank Petrie, known to the live show audience as Wheels. Those of us who are wheelchair jockeys have many obstacles to overcome that everyone else takes for granted in their everyday lives. Simple things such as using or even locating a wheelchair accessible restroom sometimes requires the skill set of Indiana Jones. To sum it up, Here's a quote from Wheel Life, a site and newsletter geared to wheelchair users. Quote, despite ADA regulations, many businesses in the United States have chosen to ignore the law and ostracize the disability community by failing to update their facilities in compliance with accessibility standards. The same can be said for many other countries around the world that have enacted accessibility laws but rarely enforce them. End quote. I've found a number of apps over time that help me address issues that I constantly face. As of late, I came across two more apps that I want to share with you. First, iAccess, which is best described as Yelp for the physically challenged. It has literally dozens upon dozens of user-related listings from restaurants, lodging, and shopping centers, all the way to transit stations, bowling alleys, and even shoe stores. You rate their accessibility from one to five stars on anything from their ease of entrance, their bathroom facilities, or their interiors. Provided is the business's address, phone number, hours of operation, and a map for directions. At the end, you're invited to post a review of your experience. Second is Wheelmate. Wheelmate has a much narrower focus, but equally crucial. It shows you the nearest locations with the big three needs for the physically challenged. Access, restrooms, and parking. Simply launch the app, revealing your current location on a map. At the bottom of the screen, a prompt asks you which of the three categories you are looking for. If you happen upon a location not listed... Simply click on the plus button, type in the name of the business, choose the relevant icon, indicate whether it's free or paid, and click Add Location. Of course, you're encouraged to rate the location. Give it a thumbs up or a thumbs down depending on your experience there. Plus, you can designate if it's free or if there's a charge involved. Now, as I quoted earlier, governments don't consider enforcing ADA laws a top priority if at all. That's why most of these types of apps are grassroots based. So, if you have a need for such apps, please download them and start helping us help ourselves. Well, Frank, I really appreciate you bringing your perspective in. I'm going to talk about Frank a little bit later, too, in the show. Um, 
I really appreciate what you said about helping us help ourselves. Um, if there's anything I've learned by talking to people who have different kinds of challenges is that everybody wants to do stuff themselves. People don't want help. They want to do things themselves. So anyway, I really appreciate you uh, telling us about those two cool apps. I'm sure that will help some of our audience. Next up, we've got a recording from Tom Merritt of the Daily Tech News Show on an app he's really been enjoying using. One of the tips my doctor has recommended for healthy eating, both for losing weight, weight maintenance, and just generally being more mindful about what you're eating, is to log what you eat. And you may have seen this advice all over the internet. The positives are you start to think more about what you're eating, how much you're eating. Uh, you do a little less of the casual snacking where you kind of forget how many chips did I have? I don't know, because you're logging all of that. And for a, a goal of actual weight loss, it will allow you to get a, a fairly good idea. Calorie counts, there's a lot of controversies about how accurate they really are, but at least lets you kind of set a direction uh, to plan your eating. I started using an app called My Net Diary. And one of the reasons I like it is it's got a great user interface. Uh, it, it makes it really easy to see how many calories you've got budgeted, how many you've eaten, uh, and how many you have left, uh, which is an important part of planning your day. But also, it avoids one of the downsides of food logging. There's been some stories about food logging causing people to overdo it because of the gamification in apps and feeling guilted, uh, feeling like they they shouldn't eat well and, and actually eating less nutritionally than they should because they're trying to meet goals. Or if they go over over the goal, kind of abandoning hope because they feel like, oh, I blew it. And my net diary is really nice because it has these little daily uh, tips in it that oftentimes will tell you, hey, if you go over, don't feel bad. This is all about, you know, your overall progress. They'll tell you that eating nutritionally is more important. They're, they're actively trying to give you messages that say, you know, this is all about your health, not about a game that you have to win. Although there is that aspect of it that keeps you on target. The way my net diary works, uh, it keeps track of your exercise and your steps. If you have an Apple watch, uh, hooked to the iOS app, you can track how much water you're drinking, uh, which is something that a lot of people want to track. And then you have options for breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snacks. Now, if you're buying something from a, a rather well-known name brand or a grocery store or a chain restaurant, it's going to be in here. And in fact, you can scan the UPC code on products to have it automatically populate the calorie information for that. I eat a lot of meals from the Tavala Smart Oven, which are not in here. So it also allows you to create a custom food where you name the food and then type in the information from the side of the box or, or from the card that comes with the Tavala meals in my case. And what that ends up doing is allowing you to keep track of stuff that isn't in here. Now, sometimes you're going to go to a mom and pop restaurant and it's just not going to be in here. And what I do in those cases is I make my best guess of, well, this chain restaurant meal seems close to the at least the calorie count of this meal. Uh, but overall, I have lost about 11 pounds doing this since I started it in June. Uh, they also have a premium version. Everything that I've talked about so far is free. But if you want to uh, actually get a few more measurements tracked, if you want it to adapt as you go along, 
And if you wanted to account for your steps, in the free version, it'll take your exercise and up your calorie count based on how much it thinks you've burned. But it'll also count your steps in the premium version. Uh, the premium version also does things like uh, allow you to track your health and medications, has some diabetes options, uh, things like editing recipes. If you want to add your own recipes, it'll help you come up with trackers like that. And that version is $60 per year or $9 per month if you just want to pay month to month. I have not done that. I have been using it and been enjoying it uh, just with all of the free versions, but I thought it might be interesting to some of you. Again, it's My Net Diary. That sounds pretty cool, Tom. I read an article a long time ago in the Wall Street Journal that explained that those who track something tend to lose more weight than those who don't. They weren't specific about saying you had to track calories or carbs or whatever. They just said, you have to track something. And uh, it also said that it's not tracking your weight that actually makes you uh, change your behaviors. It seems to be tracking input, output, and things like that. Anyway, I became a huge believer in tracking exercise and when I eat, what I eat, I should say, when I want to shake off some extra pounds. I also found that it helped me long-term as well, that the weight has stayed off eh, for the most part. My net diary sounds excellent for this. I put a link in the show notes to the iOS app, and I presume it's also available on the Google Play Store. In the iOS App Store, by the way, it's listed as Calorie Counter Dash My Net Diary. That's so long that the My Net Diary part is cut off, which is super handy for finding it. So if you find Calorie Counter, that's probably Calorie Counter My Net Diary. Follow the link and make sure, though. Thanks a lot, Tom, for that. All right, we've got returning contributor after a very long hiatus, Shane Jackson, with another great review. Hello, fellow castaways. This is Shane Jackson, located in Birmingham, Alabama. And today, we are here to do a review for Ms. Allison Sheridan, who has recently asked for help. She's going away, but she still wants to be able to do a show, so she needs people to submit material. And here I am to do so. This is going to be a very quick review of a Bluetooth speaker that I purchased recently. I give about 3.8 stars to this speaker. It's good enough if you accept the fact that you know what you're getting and you know what you're paying for. So uh, Prime Day was uh, last week, if you remember correctly, on Amazon, and they had the Anchor Soundcore 2 Bluetooth speaker for 25 bucks. I couldn't turn it down, so I purchased it. It's normally about 40 $39.99, I believe. I hope Allison will put an Amazon link in the show notes so that you can go get it. Please use that link because it will help her. If I didn't buy it on Prime, I would use her link. So... I've been a longtime friend of Allison's. We've, we've known each other since I became a castaway, which I became a castaway, I believe, in October of 2007. I think I've got that right. Um, sometimes I think it's 2008, but actually it goes back further than that. So, yeah, I've been a fan of hers for a good while. This is a bar-shaped uh, speaker, and across the back of the speaker, it actually says Anchor. Now, I'm totally blind and legally deaf, so if this... Review sounds kind of strange. I apologize. So across the back, again, we have Anchor, spelled out in big letters, nice big letters that a blind person who can read print letters can 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 decipher. On the front of the speaker is the grill, which has two 6-watt drivers inside it, and the grill is on the outside. That's the speaker setup. This is a 12-watt speaker. It does distort at high volume, so don't turn it up too loud, which... 
that's ironic because it doesn't go up too loud anyway. And most of the reviews I've seen state that it does not go up very loud. And that that's right. It, it's meant for a small room listening to normal music. If you try to play Akon or, um, uh, uh, I don't know, somebody like that on this, it's not going to work. It's going to distort all over the place. Believe me, I've tried to play some good Jamaican reggae, and it distorts. But it is an awesome speaker for podcasts. If you're like Allison and you listen to podcasts and don't care about music, perfect. It works great. Now, along the top of the speaker, the sides, the left side is blank. The right side has a gasket that you can open and close. This speaker is waterproof to IPX7 standard, so it will submerge for one meter for 30 minutes and not hurt it. I've not tried that, and I'm not going to. You can if you like. It is a gasket on the right side that you open and close, and inside that gasket you have, or under that gasket, I should say, you have a a 3.5 inch or 3.5 inch, I guess it's 3.5 millimeter as well. I don't really know, but anyway, a 3.5 millimeter headphone jack. Under that you have a micro USB for charging it. It charges in under four hours. And the battery lasts for a whopping 24 hours. Imagine that. I've never heard of a Bluetooth speaker under $40 charging, uh, uh, staying charged for 24 hours. But it does. I've not had to charge this thing yet, and I've had it for about four days. So along the top, we have five buttons. We have a power button, which looks like a lightning bolt, I'm going to assume. Again, I'm blind, so it, it looks like a lightning bolt to me. It's like a three-quarter circle with a a little strike through the top, like a little line going uh, through it. Then there is a plus and minus buttons on either side of a triangle. The plus and minus are your up and down, and your triangle is your play button. And that's also the uh, play pause. That's also the um, button that you use to activate the phone. If you get a call, you can tap this and say hello or in the call with it as well because it's a microphone and it works fairly well for that. I've used it. It works. It works fine. If you double, um, well, I don't think it's double. I think you hold it down. Yeah. Let's see. Yes. You hold that down. And if you hold that down, it will activate Siri or Google assistant, whichever one you use, or if you use both, please don't have them in the same room. You might get very confused. So that's what that button does. On the very far right, there's a button that I do not know what the shape is. It looks like two arrows bunched together, pointed right. Now, I guess that's the weird shape. It's it's a Bluetooth button, and that's what you use to pair. Now, when you get this for the first time, you turn it on, it's in automatic pairing. So it worked fine for me. And um, overall, this is a great speaker. I would demonstrate it here, but you cannot get the stereo effect at all. There is no stereo effect. I will let you hear what it sounds like very quickly. We're going to try to stay within Allison's time constraints here. That's the way it comes on and connects. That little sound is it connecting. Now, you're just going to hear my phone's speech, okay? I'm going to turn speech on. Speech on. And. Audio recording. Ferrite. Home. Face up. Calendar. Month. Photos. Camera. Mail, no on the clock, 3.45 p.m., maps, weather, reminders. That's what it sounds like. Speech and, off. And so, as you can hear, it's a little bit uh, muffled, but that could be because of the way I'm recording it as well. You can't really tell the stereo spread of this unless you actually stick your nose in between the two drivers, then you can hear it. 
So you're not going to get high-quality sound out of this. If you want high-quality sound, high-quality speaker, you're going to be able to, you're going to have to, excuse me, go go up to your favorite site and get your JBL or your Jawbone or your Oonts, which you can still buy the Jawbones. I've got one right over here. It's really neat, and it's got a way better stereo effect than this. But um, that's a little bit of a demo of it. It, it just it shows you what it is capable of. Speech on, speech off. And I was just making sure that my phone was back uh, in in its proper place. I didn't want the speaker to stay on without me knowing it. That's what it sounds like, guys. And it is, a, again, it's a bar shape. It's very thick. It's about the length of the iPhone. And it's narrower than my iPhone 8 Plus. So uh, it's it, if, if you set it up on its little four little teeny tiny little uh, feet, I, I hesitate to call them feet because it's like four little dots on the bottom. So, yeah, that's what this is. It's called the Anchor Sound Core 2 speaker. It is a Bluetooth speaker. It is available at Amazon. Again, please use Allison's link. I'm sure she'll put it in there, and she will appreciate it if you use that. So, thanks very much for listening to this. And, Allison, I hope you're having a good time where you are, and we look forward to you getting safely back home. Well, thanks a lot for that, Shane. I always love your reviews. I hope you keep them coming. Now is the portion of the program where Allison usually prattles on about Patreon. You can help support the Nazilla cast by becoming a member through Patreon. And if you're weary of monthly bills, there's also a PayPal button over at podfeet.com slash help the show for single time donations. And listen, If you're having trouble making ends meet, please don't donate, as Steve and Allison own roughly a 35% stake in SpaceX. Look for the Podfeet logo on the side of the booster rockets during the next launch. But there are other ways you can help out. Write a review in iTunes, ask a dumb question, or record a review, or even produce a mind-numbing piece such as this. So please, do what you can. We now return you to our program, Already in Progress. Allison? Frank always makes cracks during the live show that he calls this the pledge break, so I'm glad he got an opportunity to do it himself. As I mentioned several times, Steve and I had the great pleasure of attending MaxDoc again this year out in Woodstock, Illinois, right outside of Chicago. As the fifth conference, I have to say, I found it even more enjoyable and informative than it has ever been before, and it's been awesome before. MaxDoc has two big components. There is the conference itself, which is held at McHenry College. It runs all day, Saturday and Sunday. Each speaker talks for about 20 minutes in the morning, and then they get 45 minutes to do a deeper dive into the same topic in the afternoon. Mike Potter runs the conference and he does a fabulous job of giving lots of breaks that give you plenty of time to hang out in the lobby area and get to know people. That, of course, is a big part for me. But the real way you get to know people well is to attend the evening events, which are run by Barry Falk. Barry and his awesome wife, Bobby Ann, hold a get-together on Friday and Saturday night at a restaurant slash bar that's on the same property as the main hotel. We get pretty loud at this event indoors, but luckily there's a lovely patio that we take over to enjoy the balmy evening air and continue our tomfoolery. There's games, there's been karaoke before, you can be like me and just hang out and talk to people. One of the things that makes MaxDoc different from anything I've attended on a technical perspective is how friendly everyone is. There are simply no clicks. You can walk up to absolutely anybody and say, hi, what do you do? And they will have something interesting to say. 
We come together because of our mutual love of all things Apple, so you know you can bring out your inner geek and there's going to be no eye rolling. Here's a perfect example. David Sparks of the Mac Power Users was sitting at a big table at breakfast with us, and he was working on some last-minute changes to his presentation. He idly mumbled that he needed an iPhone frame for a video screenshot, and five separate people offered him options. He was the one who pointed out how enjoyable it is to be among your people. One of my goals at MacStock is to watch out for people standing alone, looking like they, you know, they want to be part of the party, but they're too shy or nervous to just break in on a conversation. I like to introduce myself and then drag them to a group I already know, or even if I don't know them, introduce them, and after they get their own conversation going, I walk away and I find another person to meet. I've made lots of new friends this way. The lack of click thing is interesting because many of us have known each other for you know more than a decade and could easily just hang out in our own small groups, but we don't. I can prove this. Steve and I don't even stick together. We find new people to meet, enjoy, and enjoy, and come back and bring them together and have a great time. Sometimes extraordinary things happen that are unexpected. One of my favorites was the story of Father John's iMac. He's a Nocilla Castaway, by the way. He bought a 21-inch iMac on eBay with 4 gigabytes of RAM and a Fusion drive. He bought an iFixit kit to upgrade the RAM to 32 gigabytes and a 2 terabyte SSD. Sounded like a fun project. That was until he discovered that the model he got was after Apple started using adhesive to hold the monitor glass which means instead of simply doing the terrifying operation of using two suction cups to pull off the glass, you had to somehow cut that adhesive first, as though it wasn't terrifying enough. His solution was to pack up the iMac and the kit and bring it in his car as he drove down from Wisconsin to Illinois and see if he could get someone to help him tear it down. What better place than MacStock? This is where the connections of people turned out to be handy. He simply just kept asking people, like me, if we had any experience— until he happened to ask Pat Fouquet if she knew how. And Pat said no, but Stephen Hackett is here, co-founder of Relay.fm, and I think he might be able to help. They tracked down Stephen, and he explained that he used to work for a while as a repair guy for Apple, and he would be delighted to do it. He and John did open-heart surgery on the iMac right out in the main room, to the great entertainment of all of the onlookers. The good news, as Stephen declared when he was on stage later, was that they did not break John's iMac, and it worked. John was beside himself, and Steve had fun, Stephen had fun, and the rest of us enjoyed watching. Here's another interesting thing about MacStock. Now, I grew up with three brothers, and I'm an engineer by education and employment, so I'm used to being pretty much the only woman in the room. As I advanced in my career, I, man, I imagined the number of women in the sciences would go up over time. But when I went to the AltConf at WWDC, I was simply shocked at how few women were there. I did a rough count at one point, and in a room for the keynote with maybe two to 300 people, I did not count 20 women. It was awful. So imagine my delight when I went to MacStock and I saw more women than I have ever seen at a tech conference. I pointed this out to the audience from the main stage and asked the women to all stand up and literally be counted. That was very early in the, in the morning, so the room wasn't yet full, but 25% of the people in the room were women. How cool is that? Not only that, 27% of the speakers at MacStock were women. Now, none of this was done artificially, you know, targeting women or anything. It's just the kind of place that MacStock is. It's simply a place where women geeks feel welcome and heard. It is awesome. I can't talk about the awesomeness of MacStock without mentioning our good friend Corky and his dog Hoosier. Very technical information you could get here. Anyway, four years ago, this guy Corky, who listens to the NoSilicast, offered us a ride from the airport to MacStock. 
We thought that was a huge imposition on him, but he insisted that he would be delighted. On that first ride, Corky was worried that he would look like a stalker because he knows, knew so much about me and my family. That's only because he's listened to the show for so long, and I tell you guys this stuff. After five Mac stocks, Corky, Steve, and I are great friends, and he no longer worries about that kind of thing, and instead teases me mercilessly, almost like I've got yet another big brother. Anyway, on this trip, he was driving us back from the airport with some time to spare before Barry's first evening activities, and Corky says, do you want to meet the puppy? Well, we didn't know what we were in for, but (laughs) meet a puppy? Sure, why not? Well, the puppy is a dog named Hoosier, who is the most magnificent dog I have ever seen in my life. Hoosier is an English Mastiff, and he weighs 235 pounds. That's 107 kilograms for the rest of you. It is impossible to wrap your brain around what a 235-pound dog would even look like, so I put a photo of him in the show notes. Steve and I posed for a photo with him, but the photo that really illustrates his size is the one with Corky's wife, Stacy. The enormity of him looks like it looks like a poorly done Photoshop job, like you're going to think this photo was faked. He is so giant. Later in the weekend, Corky and his wife Stacy decided it might be fun to bring Hoosier to the MacStock evening event. I bring this up for two reasons. First, because Hoosier was a huge hit at the party, with most people hugging him and posing for photos with him, but also because it gave Stacy an excuse to meet Corky's weird, nerdy friends. I hear she reported back that we're actually kind of fun. Now, I think a great illustration of how interesting MacStock is might be a quick story of Emily. Dave Hamilton and John Braun did a live Mac Geek Gab, and we got to play Stump the Geek. I happen to have a particularly vexing problem I decided to ask them. My problem is that I put all of my devices in do not disturb mode when I'm recording a show, and I turn the volume all the way down, and for the iPhone, I make sure the mute switch is turned on. And yet, when I'm recording, I constantly get audio notifications from many apps. I posed the question and the boys tried to think of what might be causing this. Audience members started offering solutions, but the answer came from Emily, a 16-year-old high school student. She explained to me that she had this problem in school as well. Turns out there's a separate volume slider and toggle I had never seen. It's not under notifications where you might think it would be. On iOS, if you go into settings, sound and haptics, you see a section called ringer and alerts. There's a volume slider there, but more importantly, there's a toggle that says change with buttons. So all this time I was using the volume buttons on the phone and iPod, iPad to turn the volume all the way down, that darn slider for ringer and alerts was not changing. It was still on full blast. A quick flip of that toggle, and now the volume is the volume is the volume. I have trouble imagining a scenario where someone would turn the audio volume down on their phone and think, hey, I sure hope the ringer and alerts come in super loud now. Why is that the default? Well, on the Mac, the solution isn't quite as elegant, but she reminded me that while the sound preferences pane has input and output volume sliders, there's a third tab for sound effects. Only this slider will stop those down notification sounds. I thanked Emily, but I remain confused why Do Not Disturb doesn't do what it says on the tin. So, Emily was my hero that night, but one more thing happened that involved Emily that I really enjoyed. Wally Trewinsky hosts what he calls the MacStock Film Fest, The idea this year was to have attendees submit short movies, two and a half minutes max, that worked with the theme of the show. Steve submitted his awesome Eclipse video, and people thought that was really cool, because it is. No Silla Castaway Norbert did a really sweet tribute to his father, and No Silla Castaway Frank Petrie, that you've heard from this week, did a very compelling video called The View from My Chair. 
he recorded from his perspective what it looks like from leaving his apartment to go to the local pub across the street to order a beer. It was really fascinating to see life from his chair. At the very end, Wally played a video that had just been submitted that very day. Earlier, Nocilla Castaway, Kirshensia, did a talk on the concept of sketch notes. That's where you draw little pictures to take notes instead of just writing down words. Emily's video was a recording on her iPad of her drawing sketch notes during the MacStock presentations. It was kind of a meta video because it was about what we were actually watching real time, and it was fascinating to see her perspective on the show in this drawing made into a video. Now remember, this is a first-time attendee who is in high school. She got to have her video on the main stage. How fun is that? If you're young, like Nocilla Castaway Toby at 13 years old, or old like me and Steve, if you're from the U.S., or maybe Ukraine like Eugene, or the Netherlands Mar- like Martine, or if you're a super geek or a wannabe geek, you will enjoy MacStock. You'll learn, you'll laugh, and you'll meet new friends for life. Well, about a hundred years ago, or maybe a year, two years, three years ago, <laughs> Bart on the show. Yeah, wibbly wobbly timey wimey. <laughs> exactly. That was for Jill, right? Um, Bart talked to us about something called FIDO that had something to do with passwords, and he went into great detail and explained it to us, and I understand it very well. I understood it very well at the time, but since then, a lot of time has gone by, and we haven't heard much about it, and it's starting to come back into the news, and uh, so I asked Bart to come back on the show and maybe give us a refresher course, tell us what's changed, whether this is going to solve all of our password problems, or what's the state of the union, maybe something along those lines. Sure. Um, just to say what I talked to you about was WebAuthn, which is very much related, but we actually don't think I mentioned the word FIDO in the conversation, which may be why you didn't find it when you searched for FIDO. Um, hmm. I'm going to check right now. Security Bits, April 13th, 2018, the FIDO Alliance. Okay, they're the people, but WebAuthn is a protocol I wax lyrical about. Okay. Bart explains which is a- WebAuthn and FIDO. On security bits on in March of there we go yeah so the, the web also was a bit I was no, fixated re- on back then. oh no this is just recently just last March that you talked about Fido so it must have been yes. and Montreal of Fido got something in two thousand eight but that's probably not it in any case <laughs> let's ass- might be a bit of dog. let's assume um, nobody remembers anything that would be a good place to yes. start. Well, I thought I'd tell you a story which ends up there, but which takes us through a sensible journey first so that when we arrive, it makes sense. All right. Instead of going backwards from the finish and trying to make it make sense, I thought we'd go forward to arrive there naturally. I like it. So first thing to say is I am not a FIDO expert, right? I understand the principles. I understand the concepts, but I have not looked at the minute details here. I do not know the intricate workings of the protocols and the specs, and I don't have any use for it yet because it's not really in common use yet. So, you know, yes, I understand the principles. Yes, I've done my best to read the documentation that's available. No, I'm not an expert. And if I might get something wrong, I apologize in advance. Okay. Well, you'll start by leading us at least in some direction of rightness. Yeah. So let's let's start with the fact that we know that passwords are the problem to be solved on the web. Mm. So the key thing to know about a password is that it's a secret that we entrust to a website so they can authenticate us. And once we give them that password, we have no choice but to trust that they will properly protect it for us. Hmm. There's no way we can validate what they do with it. Right. 
we know it's technically possible to protect it well. You just, you ju- I mean, this is really simple. I, I, I don't mean just ironically here. You just use a strong hash with a salt. I mean, it's, it's not rocket science. But unfortunately, reality has shown us that many websites cannot handle these simple concepts. What was 7-Eleven last week? It's just used to wait. No, oh, that was that's changing not passwords. a password storage problem. Right, right, right. That was changing passwords. Right, that was basically allowing you to enter any email address you wanted to receive a password reset. So they could have stored those passwords completely securely, and that just bypassed the whole bloody need for the thing. Oh, okay, sorry. Bad example. But no, the, the real example is the fact that we know there are literally billions, with a capital B, of leaked passwords in all sorts of publicly accessible databases. Right. So the QED, people are not protecting them properly. They're leaking all over the place giant spray of passwords. So that means we have no choice but to use unique passwords for every site we have an account on. To, lim- now, to limit the damage. Humans, that doesn't eliminate the damage. It limits, it limits it to that one site that screws up at a time. But it's the best you can do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, if the site, if a site gets hacked, that site gets hacked. No matter what you use for authentication, that is going to remain a problem, right? We could solve the password problem completely, and if a site gets hacked, the site still got hacked. It doesn't matter what your password was, whether you even had a password, whether you were using something superb, whether you were using FIDO two and WebAuth. And if the site gets hacked, the site gets hacked. So we can never fix that. Let me let me add just one little st- bit of clarification to what you're saying. When you say when the site gets hacked, if it gets hacked and they don't protect your passwords. So, for example, LastPass no. got hacked and the database was completely encrypted and nothing went wrong because nobody could get to those passwords. But they did, the site got hacked, but it didn't matter because the, they had done all of the right things. I'm just trying. Okay, that's a particularly strange example where hacking the site doesn't get you into the site. In a normal, in a normal website, if they hack Gmail, they get your email. If they, you know, if they hack your forum, they get to read your forum messages and your private messages. I mean... But it doesn't always mean they have well, your password. No, I wasn't saying they have your password. I'm saying they have whatever you're doing on the site. Okay. So okay. It, it, the password isn't the crown jewels. It's a mechanism for proving who you, you are, who you say you are. If we remove passwords completely, we stop using passwords for authentication. If they hack our email, they still get our email. It doesn't matter they didn't use a password. Right. So, you know, that, that's right. to say, just, you know... Well, the problem we have is with password reuse, which is rampant. So we have passwords leaking everywhere, and we have the fact that us human beings are terrible at generating strong, secure, random passwords. We're terrible at remembering them, and we're certainly positively not going to be able to do it for the tens, if not hundreds, of websites we all use these days. So, therefore, when inevitably a password leaks, the chances are it's been reused all over the place, and that's why something called password stuffing attacks are so bloody well popular and so darned effective. Now, we can help ourselves with wonderful tools like 1Password and LastPass and so forth, and with password generators to help us with the other half of the equation, but unfortunately, in the real world, there's an awful lot of really sloppy password hygiene out there. Right, right. I mean, I'm sure no, no, Silicon Castaway has ever used a password twice. So we we aren't speaking to this audience, clearly, right? (laughs) Oh, uh, clearly. And I have certainly always done exactly what I preached and (laughs) never taken shortcuts ever, I promise. (laughs) Wait, where's that lightning? So basically, what we. Yeah. So what we have is weak passwords reused widely. So. 
This has been blindingly obvious for some time. And so the first attempt to deal with this was two-factor authentication. And the concept was that you added a so-called second factor, which was generally broken into one of three classes, something you know, like a password or a passphrase, something you have, like a hardware token or some sort of cryptographic key, maybe, uh, something you are, some sort of biometrics. And the way we generally worked it was one of the two factors would be something you know, i.e. a password, and then the other factor would be either a token of some sort, like a YubiKey or something, or biometrics like Touch ID or Face ID or something like that. And so what we really had was something you know combined with either something you have or something you are. Very, very common in the when two factor auth was all the thing. But it was never practical to do that for every website. And resistance has been high because, yes, the security improvements are significant, but so is the pain felt by users. So, I mean, we've had this conversation oh, right? yeah. on this very show. Um, I, th- I think I did an entire recording with you to try to convince you to enable 2FA. And at the end of the recording, you were still not convinced. <laughs> but about three days later, I think it, you finally went, oh, fine, I'll do it. <laughs> Yeah, well, to be fair, it's gotten a lot better now that uh, things like 1Password and LastPass support it, where you simply have it in there and it automatically copies it and you hit paste. But I've definitely talked to people today who are just like, nope, 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 not going to do it. Yeah, and you may end up with people doing it for work because literally IT ticked the box that says force two-factor authentication, at which point you have no choice. You either don't work or you have two-factor authentication and you might be guilted into doing it for your bank or one or two other crown jewels but you're not doing it everywhere mm-hmm. no no one's doing it everywhere because a lot of websites don't offer it and even if they do it, it it's not zero barrier to entry right, right. so two-factor auth wasn't it now two-factor auth has evolved and really these days two-factor auth is absolutely not the done thing anymore we've moved on now to something called mfa so goodbye 2fa hello mfa hmm. um and mfa is multi-factor authentication and it's basically the logical evolution of 2fa where you add in as many factors as you can get your hands on and you combine them, even though many of those factors are a much lower security than something like a one-time code that you know that you would use with traditional 2FA. When you put them all together, you can calculate a confidence level. And depending on the current scenario, the, uh, the website or service can apply different thresholds. Hmm. And so what you end up with is that you're not challenged as often. And when you are challenged, you may be asked for things that are less challenging than having to dig out your authenticator app. So is this in, I mean, I'm not super familiar with this concept. I mean, I thought this was one of those future things. This is actually happening now. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's no, right, there is no line between 2FA and MFA, right? So these days, you generally, you generally, if you're coming to a website with 2FA where you've logged in from before and you still have the cookie, they probably won't ask you to do the 2FA thing again. Because they'll use that cookie as another factor to go, yeah, okay, I don't need to pester you with the code, right? That's MFA. Oh. That's an example of MFA. I don't know if I've run into that. Oh, okay. Well, um, iCloud. When you lo- when iCloud changed from two FA to what they what do they call it these days? Remember they made us all change it about two years right. ago. Right. It was it was the initials are two FA, but it it stood for something else, 
or something. It was really similar. Like it sounded like synonyms. Yeah, but it wasn't right. because really what they named it very badly, but what they were doing is moving us to MFA. So you go to iCloud.com on a browser you've never been to iCloud.com before, and they'll make you do that whole thing where it'll pop up on your phone saying, allow this, log in, and then you say, okay, and then it gives you a code, and then you type the code in, and then you get logged in, and then it says, would you like me to remember? And then it forgets anyway and keeps asking you that over and over again. Well, that means you're cleaning your cookies too aggressively. No, I'm not cleaning my cookies, ever. Or Safari, ironically, might be cleaning them for you. I don't know. I get it constantly. Drives me bananas. Okay, well, for, it, it works. It, it works for me. I'm sorry to say, which is I seem to say that a lot to you. But <laughs> authentication stuff, like my watch unlocks my mic reliably. Oh, mine does like now. That. And Steve says stop. Oh, good. So, oh. It's like, apparently, there's conservation <laughs> of ability to unlock within the house. Spousal, yeah, it was a spousal conservation, conservation of effort or something. Yeah. Anyway, yes. So that is an example of a kind of MFA. Other examples would be where you start to do clever things like if you're appearing from the same ISP you always use, fine, we won't we won't challenge you nearly as often. We'll only challenge you once a month instead of once a week. Mm. If you suddenly show up from an IP address we've never seen you from before, you may be traveling, but we're now going to challenge you. We're going to say not only please enter your password, but actually would also like you to enter the last three digits of your credit card number or something. So you, you can ramp up and ramp down what you're asking in response to a calculated confidence and a calculated risk. Just to be obnoxious, example, I would like to point out that I was never challenged when I logged in anywhere in when I was in Chile. <laughs> but were you using your own Mac? Yes. Okay, you have cryptographically tied that Mac to you. Okay. but If you had gone to an internet cafe or use someone else's Mac to access your iCloud, then it really should have made you prove yourself. Okay. But you're, oh, but I'm just saying, my you, Mac. You, nothing on my Mac ever challenged. Um, till one day I started getting that pop-up on every device saying, hey, you're using... Oh, I know what it was when I was changing my um, SIM card to my Google Fi card to use in, in a different country. That started saying uh, all kinds of stuff. Maybe it was about... Um, uh, be, it's probably iMessage. Yeah, yeah. The iMessage warning. Yeah, because your your cell phone number just changed. Your Apple ID suddenly went from being on one cell phone number to another cell phone number. Yeah, maybe that was it. Anyway, gets confused. Yeah. I would also, I know I'm derailing the conversation, but I would like to know how come Apple doesn't let me uh, use any biometrics to authenticate for my uh, Apple password. Uh, wait till iOS 13, macOS, whatever we're oh, calling Oh, thank you. Okay, good. All right, back to the topic. That's, yeah, that's coming. So another example would be where context matters, right? My bank does this quite well. So when I, it does it in a couple of ways. So the first way it does it is when I log in, if I end, it asks me not for a difficult to enter password. It asks me just for a short pin if I'm coming in from a device I usually come in from. Hmm. It just says, yeah, I'd like the fourth digit of your pin and the second digit of your pin or something. So it's not asking me for anything very challenging. It's just a little pin. Hmm. But if I get that wrong, it changes mode completely. Suddenly, my risk factor has gone kaboing. Oh, interesting. And now I start to say, right, I'm going to need to know the last four digits of your work phone number. I want your full password. Oh, yeah. And what's the last three digits of your MasterCard or whatever? Wow. And it's not going to let me in until it gets extra information. Then it then it settles down again and goes, oh, okay, fine. Huh. And it'll show me my balance. But if I then go to do a credit transfer to an account I haven't previously saved, shields all immediately go up. Hmm. I'm now forced to take out a hardware authenticator wow. to prove to the bank I am who I say I am before it will let me transfer money to a quote-unquote stranger. Mm. 
On the other hand, if I just reuse a pre-existing template, it goes fine. Yeah, sure. Hmm. So MFA encompasses everything 2FA did. But it it has sort of this concept of it's not just you had one extra factor. We will take every single factor we can get our hands on. And we will calculate a confidence level in how sure we are you are who you say you are. And depending on what we're doing, we will apply different thresholds and we'll start to challenge. So we'll annoy you as little as we think we need to, depending on the risk of what you're doing and how certain we are that you are who you say you are. And if we're not certain or if you're doing something risky, then up come the levels of annoyance. And whenever we can, we tone them down. And that's really much more user-friendly and also much more secure. Are you saying you, you run into this a lot? Because I don't know that I have yes. run into it yet. I'm not sure I'd recognize it from your description, but I don't know that I've ever seen it. I, that's because it gets out of your way. If you're using Google multi-factor OS, you're using multi-factor OS. Google doesn't challenge you the same way every single time for everything you do. Almost nothing is using true two-factor auth anymore because it was such a pain in the backside. Almost everything is somewhere on the spectrum between a wonderfully implemented MFA and, you know, two and a half factor. Hmm. I'm still getting text messages from banks and things like that for 2FA. Okay, but everything you did in 2FA is also part of MFA, right? Two is a two, 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 all, all of those tools, two is those subset of M. mechanisms, those mechanisms are still in MFA. Right. Okay. But you're generally not limited to just giving one. You know, they they will accept from you, you know, a, an authenticator token, nope. and they may also let you add like um some sort of you you can authenticate from your watch. Like Microsoft are really far ahead on this. Uh, Microsoft are great at this, where you can just okay something on your watch if you have your watch authenticated to Microsoft. So sometimes I'll make you do the code using the authenticator app. Sometimes I'll just let you tap your watch to say, yeah, that's me. I don't know Th- that's I have... not two-factor anymore, right? There's much more going on there. Yeah. I'm um, not... And as well as all the explicit... I'm not sure I have seen that yet, Bart. Uh, like I said, my, my bank, it's... it's No, it's a text message. That is the only way to do the, the second factor. Okay. And um, I, I've got another bank where it takes face ID, but I have to give it face ID. Period. There isn't ever... There's no other option. Okay, well... Hopefully you'll start to encounter MFA more because mm. it's a much more pleasant experience. Okay. I, I I meet it on, on GitHub. I meet it on Microsoft. Microsoft are superb. At Microsoft this. is uh, GitHub is Microsoft. So maybe they well, they didn't used to be. I mean, I know they own each other, but they actually have completely separate systems, right? You do don't they? authenticate to GitHub with your yeah, Microsoft that's account true. yet. That's true. I'm sure you will, but I actually. Oh, I look forward to that. Yeah. No. Um, hmm. I'm just surprised I'm not seeing it. If it's if it's that prevalent, maybe, like you say, maybe I'm not noticing it. You're probably not noticing it because most people's interaction with MFA is that they they specify one factor. So they specify one explicit factor. But that's the bit I was about to get to, as well as any explicit factors you set up. So usually there'll be at least one explicit factor along with your password, and they will allow you many more, which you may never choose to do. But as well as the explicit factors, MFA takes into account implicit factors which you don't have to worry about they're being worried about by the provider so they will keep track of what's normal for you Hmm. so you normally come from this range of ip addresses you normally access a service at this time you normally don't go to these countries and then when they see something abnormal they will be more pestering about getting you to use your explicit factors okay so So maybe we also don't notice a lack of pain 
right? Yes, when it stops exactly hurting, I'm not was... noticing that. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. So to most people, MFA manifests as, hey, I thought 2FA used to be really annoying, and now it just sort of lets me get on with things. That, that's MFA in action. Hmm. Okay. So depending on the implementation, like I say, it's all on a spectrum, but a really good MFA is extremely configurable by the people making use of it. So you're, you know, like I describe, the owner, the operator can really tweak the settings, to, you know, of how confident I need to be for this task versus for this task. And if you use a corporate solution like Office 365, your Office 365 administrators really get to tweak how MFA works. So you can do things like say that anyone coming from our corporately owned IP addresses will never be challenged for their second factor. But as soon as they leave our premises, always challenge them. Mm. Or as soon as you leave our premise, we will not accept anything less secure than a certain level of confidence. Or block everything that we're 50% unsure of until they come back to campus and then reset their the blocks on them or whatever. So you really have a lot of control with MFA. And the end result is generally speaking that it's less obnoxious to the user. Okay. And that's good. All right. So MFA, not as bad as 2FA. Not as inconvenient for users and more secure. Okay. So MFA is just better. Okay. No matter what mechanic, no matter what metric you use, MFA is the, the enhancement of 2FA. And a particularly good factor to have in your MFA is some sort of hardware device or token that's been cryptographically recognized and tied to your account in some way. Hardware trumps pin numbers and passwords and all that kind of stuff. But the least convenient so for the user. Get... No, it can be most convenient. No, 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 no. Not if right. you have to carry it around. Least convenient. Ah, ah. What if your phone could be it? Okay. You have that. Or your watch. Okay, so that sounds like just my auth token that I'm getting from one password on my phone. No, 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 okay. no. This is cryptographically way, way, way different. This is not an app. This is actually your secure enclave being leveraged to turn your phone into an actual mm. hardware security token with every bit as much security as a YubiKey. Okay. But we're jumping ahead a little. So... Before I tell you all the cool stuff, which is what you're going to get from Fido, right? Okay, yeah, we know Fido is going to be the answer to all of this. That's why we're having this conversation. <laughs> but before we get there, I want to give you a little primer on one cryptographic concept, because this is the crypto that underlies all of this cool stuff. It's the concept of public-private key pairs, or so-called asymmetric encryption. All right. I've heard you try so, to explain this to me before, and every time I think I get it, it seems to leak out of my brain. I'll, I'll give you another try at it. Okay. Well, this time I'm only going to tell you one of the many cool things it can do, and that probably should make it easier because it can do many things, but today we're interested in one of its tricks and only one of its tricks. So let's keep it simple. So a key pair is a pair of long, random-looking cryptographic keys. They're just two long pieces of gibberish. Numbers. Numbers? Letters they are numbers? binary under the hood. You can represent them. Off, they're often represented as hex digits. Okay, so alphanumeric. Yeah. Well, a to, a, 0 to 9, A to F. But ultimately, they're binary strings. At the end of the day, they're a sequence of ones and zeros of a certain number of bits. Okay. And yeah, represent them however you like. So they come in pairs, and those pairs are related to each other. Um, and the relationship is 
that anything I encrypt with one of the pair can only be decrypted by the opposite number. So if I encrypt with key A, only key B can decrypt. If I encrypt with key B, only key A can decrypt. Okay. Key A can't decrypt its own stuff. Key B can't encrypt decrypt its own stuff. It has to cross from one pair to the other. Okay. And that, that relationship is mirrored. We arbitrarily choose. When we generate a key pair, we arbitrarily choose that one of them we shall guard as if it were the crown jewels mm-hmm. and we shall never allow it to leave the device it was generated on and we shall keep it completely secret. And therefore we shall call it, very imaginatively, the private key. Okay. The other one, we can distribute to anyone freely without any security implication. So we call it the public key. Therefore, we have a pair of keys, one of which we've chosen to keep private and one of which we've chosen to make public. We can use a key pair like this to authenticate without having to hand over a secret. So if we authenticate using a password, I give you the password and then you ask me to give give it back to you again and I'm trusting you to keep the password. So you have a secret in order to authenticate me. With public-private key pairs, we can have secure authentication and you don't get any secrets. Therefore, I don't have to trust you to protect my secret. You ain't got one. So how does it work? Step one, I'm creating my account. I give you my public key. It's public, so I'm not actually trusting you with anything valuable. I give you my public key. I then come along and I want to log into Allison's bank or whatever it is you're giving me. And you generate a random number. Wait, you wait, take wait. My who, who's public... you? Am I the site owner? You're the website. Okay. okay, so I'm the guy trying to log in and you're the website gotcha. I'm trying to log okay. into. So I set up an account with you and I gave you my public key and I'm now coming back and I want to log in to whatever it is you're giving me. Pretend you're my bank or something. So I got to log in to you. You, you as the website I'm trying to log into... You generate a big, long, random number that you do not tell me. Hmm. You take my public key that I gave you, that I am not that's not secret, and you encrypt that random number you chose with my public key. Oh. And that creates what we call a challenge. Yeah, I see. I, see, I, I hear a penny yeah. dropping and I'm liking it. Yeah, because, because even though all I have is the public key... I am the one who created this long piece of gibberish. And since the public mm-hmm. private keys are symmetric, if I encrypt the long random number I chose with that, uh, with that public key, you can unlock it with the private key. And only the owner of the private key can. Right. As long as you never give your private key away. Yes. Ass- assuming your private key isn't compromised, right? If, 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 if it gets stolen somehow, that's a big deal. That's why it's such a big deal when companies accidentally put their private keys in their GitHub code repos. Has that happened? Which has happened. So that challenge is, it's just an encrypted random number, but we call it a challenge. And the only person on the planet who can solve that challenge, assuming nothing's gone horribly wrong, is me. So you hand the challenge to me, I use my private key, I decrypt it, and then I hand you back the number you gave me, and you match it to them up, and you go, wow, it really is him, (laughs) and you let me in. Hmm. So we have securely authenticated and I have not had to share a secret with you. And that's, that is the cryptographic primitive at the heart of FIDO. FIDO 1 and FIDO 2. Can I, that can is, I ask a, a question in here? 
so if um, if I've got a, a website called uh, a spoof of Bank of America dot com, it's misspelled. It's mm. Bank of America dot com, and mm-hmm. I generate. I can get your public key because it's everywhere. I can generate a, a random number, and you can decrypt it. Oh, but but I don't know what you just gave me. So right. you can't yeah. get into, I can't use that information you just gave me in order to log in someplace else into the Correct. real bank of America. Ah, it's starting to, pennies dropping real hard right now. Yeah. Cause I, you have no secret of mine and you don't get any secret of mine at any point in the conversation. Right. So you can't abuse it cause you don't have it. Yeah. Okay. It, it's cool. isn't yeah. it? It's just math, but it's cool. Yeah. Okay. So this is where FIDO comes in first. So FIDO 2 is what's new, but FIDO has existed for some time. So first off, FIDO uses asymmetric crypto to authenticate stuff on the web. FIDO stands for Fast Identity Online. FIDO. It's an open suite of protocols managed by the FIDO Alliance. And if you want to see the members of the FIDO Alliance, the link is in the show notes. If they're big and in tech, they're probably on there either as one of the board members, one of the sponsors, or one of the regular members. Just scanning through the logos, Google, Facebook, PayPal, Amazon, Intel, Microsoft, Visa, MasterCard, Mozilla. Nice. Many, many more. This is a who's who of tech. So... FIDO, in the original implementation, provided standard protocols to allow certified hardware tokens to authenticate to websites. FIDO tokens store a private key, and the way it works is there's no physical pins in a FIDO hardware token that allow the private key to ever leave. The private key is physically confined within the hardware token. There is no electronic signal you can send that token that will result in it spitting out that private key it cannot come out it's it is a secure enclave on a usb key basically Mm. what it can do is it has the pins to allow you to send it a challenge and it will send you the answer but you can never get the key out so at that point what you need is your browser to act as a middleman between the fido hardware token and the website And that's what the FIDO protocol specifies. And that's what has allowed things like a YubiKey to be used to authenticate to to Google or to GitHub or to wherever else you can use a YubiKey online. That's what made that work is FIDO. So, And that's what's going on. If you lose your YubiKey... Then that factor is gone. So... FIDO was designed to be used as a second factor. FIDO dates from the 2FA era, which is why the protocol was actually called uh, U2FA, which is universal second factor, is what that stood for. So FIDO, the original, the not FIDO not 2, FIDO no number, FIDO the original, it was a 2FA thing. So it was designed to be a universal second factor. And if you lost it, you would then have to go into account recovery mode as if you had lost your Google Authenticator or whatever. But can somebody get into all of my accounts if they've got my my YubiKey? They would need your password too, right? Because it's your second factor. Okay. But you would have, so you would have to go through, if you got a new YubiKey, you would now have to go through and and do a bunch of crap to get that going, right? You would. And a YubiKey has a private key, which means a YubiKey has a public key. So if you use the same YubiKey for multiple websites, it's the same 
key so they could use it to track you across the internet. So in reality, you would generally have a separate key for every website, which means it's great for the crown jewels, useless for hundreds of websites all over the internet. Okay. But hey, it was pretty darn good well, not for, useless. you know, first go at Pro- this. It's, it's got a disadvantage of lack of privacy, but it's still got the security if you go across hundreds of websites, yes? Yes, absolutely. Okay. But of course, really, the only websites that went to the effort of supporting this protocol were the Crown Jewels websites. So stuff like GitHub, because if someone can publish software as you, that's a really big deal, which is why GitHub has always had really good security practices. Hmm. And, you know, Google were very quick on the Fido train because, like I keep saying, email is the crown jewels because you can use my, you know, your email account to reset your passwords all over the place. So Fido worked well for protecting the big stuff, but it never took off as something you would use to authenticate to a random blog. It just wouldn't be supported. Okay. It was It was a bit, not quite as bad, but it was a bit like... Those RSA tokens, like PayPal had them. That was about it, right? Very, very few websites had them. Well, FIDO was not quite that limited, but it it never became something you used everywhere. We used them constantly at work. If you wanted to VPN... Exactly, at work is exactly the kind of crown jewels. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, we. Uh, it was our way of VPNing in. You couldn't do it without uh, one of the RSA secure ID cards. Yeah, and these days you would do exactly the same thing, but with a FIDO token. Okay. So, yeah. And just, I forgot to say, FIDO tokens were either USB or Bluetooth. Right. So you could use them with your uh, physical device, like your your laptop, but you could use them with your phone too? Yes. Okay. Exactly. We're saying it past tense as though they're gone. They're not gone, are they? They're not they're gone. Just not de rigueur? So, well, you can still use them if you want, but there's better choices. There. Okay. So FIDO 2 enters our picture at long last. And FIDO 2 contains... WebAuth and something called CTAP. So FIDO2 is an umbrella term that covers all the protocols that are now considered current within FIDO. Hmm. And that means that when someone says WebAuth, they mean a subset of FIDO2. Okay. It's just one of the child protocols. So WebAuth is an API that browsers and apps can use to make use of FIDO2-supported authentication types, and we'll talk about what those two authentication types are in a moment. And then CTAP is the Client2 Authenticator Protocol. And this is the protocol that lets FIDO2 talk to FIDO hardware tokens and other devices, and the and other devices part is new. So in terms of authentication protocols, there's two of them covered by FIDO2. There's FIDO U2F, which is exactly FIDO1. It is universal second factor. It is your YubiKeys. It is your USB and your Bluetooth hardware tokens. They continue to work under FIDO2. You can use all of your existing tokens and all of your existing sites. You can add new sites to your existing tokens. It works just like it did before. They're not sunsetted. They're not deprecated. U2F is part of FIDO2. Okay. And then we come to the new stuff. FIDO UAF, Universal Authentication Framework. You sound very excited, Bart. <laughs> I am, because this is a new implementation of the same asymmetric crypto, but it leverages secure enclaves like the trusted platform module on PC motherboards 
and the Secure Enclave in iOS. And there is an equivalent whose name I don't remember in Android. So these are hardware chips in our PCs, phones, and tablets that are one-way valves where private keys physically cannot come out, but challenges go in and solutions come out. This means that your phone and or your Mac are exactly as secure as a YubiKey, because it's the exact same technology. A hardware one-way valve to a private key that you can pass challenges to and get the result from, but can never, ever, ever physically get the private key out. It's not a software implementation that could be buggy. It's a physical limitation. They do not physically have a way out. It seems odd to hear the word never. (laughs) It never tends to bite us in the backside later, right? Right. You would need to desolder the chip and add in hardware pins to read off electrons where there is no physical pin. There is no path for those electrons out. So you're saying there's no way for relying on drivers. There's never going to be a way for there to be a, a, a row hammer that attacks these or anything like that. Can't be done. Right. You would have to. The only way I'm aware of that anyone's ever thought to do this is you desolder the chip, you start to scrape off the coating to the point where you can then add new pins of your own. Hmm. Right. There, the, the data is in there in ones and zeros, but you need to literally physically add a tap so it's, to tap into it's them. It's not firmware. It's pure it's hardware. It's not firmware and it's not software. Okay. It is, there is no pin. There, the, the wires haven't been added. Okay. I mean, and this is intentional, right? This is not this is not a byproduct. These sure. chips were expressly designed for the purpose of having a hardware protection. Okay. So it, it's it's like a guardrail on a motorway. It's designed to catch cars. You know, this is what they're designed for at a hardware okay. level. It's not a byproduct. It's not oh, we'll fix it in firmware. No, no. This this is hardware built with a specific task of this not being readable. All right, and you're saying these are already built into our PCs and Macs and and phones? Assuming your motherboard is not the dirt cheapest of motherboard, it like, Macs all have TPMs because Apple don't buy cheapo motherboards. Um, if you buy a little netbook or something, you probably don't have a TPM. But really, any any computer that's ever entered into a corporation is going to have a TPM in it. Did if you it's already a PC. tell us what TPM st- stands for? Did I miss it? It it is the it's sort of the brand name for the equivalent of a secure enclave. It stands for a trusted platform module. Okay, but it is a secure enclave. It's 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 the one way valve thing. It's just a brand name for it. Is TPM on a PC? Oh, okay. And uh, is it also called that on uh, on phones? No, Apple called their secure enclave, and I can't remember. What, oh, okay, I thought you said generic. Meant it was a generic word across the board. Okay. And well, a secure enclave without the capitalization is used to mean to mean the concept generally, but Apple call it a secure enclave. <laughs> well, yeah, they own the word As books to secure enclave. and messages. And anyway, um, so yes, are, yes, how long have they been? Uh, has this been built in uh, a hardware implementation of uh, FIDO two UAF or okay, FIDO so, UAF? No, no, no. FIDO UAF leverages secure enclaves and TPMs. Okay. FIDO UAF is a way of using those protocols and connecting it all the way through to the internet. But the platform chips have been around for many years because that's how hardware encryption relies on these. If your machine can handle hardware drive encryption, it's done through a TPM or a secure enclave. 
Hmm. That's that's how. That, that's okay, I'm getting I'm getting tangled on ter- terminology now. Um, okay, it's you've got a list in your show notes. It's great where it's got web authn, ctap, phyto utf, phyto uaf. When you got to phyto uaf, mm-hmm. I thought that was the physical thing, but it isn't. Okay, what I'm saying is, phyto uaf can use either an existing phyto token or a TPM slash secure enclave to do its thing. It it just needs a hardware one-way valve, and that hardware one-way valve can either be something like a YubiKey, or it can be your actual phone, tablet, or computer. Okay. Right. It doesn't care who is doing the one-way valve thing. As long as there is a one-way valve at its disposal, then the protocol can work. So if... If the the secure enclave or TPM is not the the thing that holds this <coughs> this secret key that can't ever get out and is hardwired into it, then it doesn't sound like it's hardwired into it. I'm just no, no. It is. It is what holds the keys. But holding the keys doesn't get you to the point where you can use it on the internet. Okay, so secure enclave and a TPM have a a private key built into them. Each machine has one. Aha. No, that's the great thing. That's what makes them better than a YubiKey. The secure enclave can hold many, many keys. Can or does? It has to be built it, in. Okay, the way it works is you say to the secure enclave, hi, I'd like a new key. key, key Let me start up. You, you, there is an API that tells a TPM or a secure enclave to make a new key pair, and it will remember half and give you the public key. So you can say, give me another one, and it will generate one there and then, store the private key inside itself, and give you the public so key. So software and is so generating it. It's, it does No hardware. Hardware. What do you mean hardware? How can... You just described a computer program is running that is going to... You're going to chat Okay, with. no, it's, it's high voltage and low voltage being sent to a pin, causing physical chips to send around high voltage and low voltage. This is happening at a hardware level. Just like when you send signal to a speaker, it's hardware. Okay. But some software is sending those signals to this hardware. Yes. Okay. Saying, please hardware securely create a key pair, and the hardware is only giving out the public key. Okay. So the software where things can go horribly wrong only has the public key. Hmm. Okay. Right. The software says, make me a key pair. Okay. And the software gets the public key and only... The public key. So no matter how buggy the software is, it cannot leak the private key because <laughs> okay. it never had it. Okay, got you, got you. All right. No, it's really important. I'm glad you're asking this question. It's really important. That That is what makes these things so cool. I'm, because if it was in software, it would go wrong. Yeah, it still seems like there'd right. be a way to, to write software that would go the other way, though. But that's why it's done in physical hardware with gates. Like, yeah. it is... It is implemented at the hardware level mm. for that reason, that software can't break it. Okay. Okay. It's so, not a general purpose computing chip. It's a very special purpose piece of hardware. So the, so the chip itself, all it knows how to do is to, uh, to write these, this code or write, write these uh, high and low voltages to pins and it's got it. And then it gives you the private, the public key. And the private key yes, stored and in it. And it has the it pins know. to receive a challenge, mush it through the math and spit out the answer. But that's all it can do. Make keys 
and, and answer cha- challenges. And answer right. challenges. Okay. All right. Answer challenges. Okay. Yeah. So then FIDO UAF, the, the universal authentication framework, takes advantage of this. Yes. Okay. So hard drive encryption uses the same hardware to do its thing. And Face ID and Touch ID use the same hardware to do their thing. Um, but UAF connects this amazing functionality through to the internet. So you can use, it provides a secure channel between Facebook and your TPM or your secure enclave so that you can use your phone as if it was a YubiKey. Hmm. And the great thing is the protocol allows the operating system on the phone to control access to the TPM. Which means that on an Apple device, it's either Touch ID or Face ID that's in, that's providing the OS level protections, and on an Android device, it's whatever is there, or it can fall back to a password. But basically, the website doesn't have to know how that's happening; it's up to the OS to deal with that. So the effect for you as the end user is that you go to Facebook, it pops up the Face ID thing, Face ID does its thing allows the ones and zeros to flow into the secure enclave. The secure enclave does answers the challenge and it flows all the way back to Facebook. Facebook compares the random numbers and goes, great, you're you, and lets you in. Huh. And nobody's set a password anywhere in there. And nothing's, no nothing's been given to Facebook to store. Yeah. Huh. That's the promise of FIDO2. The United States government's going to hate this. No, they're going to love it because they use this kind of stuff all the time to protect their secret documents. Right, right, until they want into something half else. Half of them will love it half yeah, the time. okay, there you go. <laughs> huh. Now, it doesn't have to be used as passwordless authentication because we live in a multi-factor world. So what you can use this for is to cryptographically map a device to a user account. So you as Facebook can say Allison's iPhone can be provably mapped to A. Sheridan's Facebook account. And so when Allison tries to use Facebook from her phone, I don't need her password because we have this secure way of mapping to the phone, right? Hmm. But you would have to do a separate authentication, a separate setup on your iPad because your iPad has a different um, secure enclave. So you'd have to authenticate your iPad to your account, and then you could use your iPad freely. Okay. So it is conceivable to get rid of your password completely and to just make sure that you never have less than one authenticated devices, because otherwise you'd lose your access. But in reality, what's going to happen is the password is going to remain a factor, but it's going to be a factor you're asked for only to set up better factors. And therefore, you can make it a really strong password with much less friction because you're not entering it five times a day. You're entering it every now and then when you need to authenticate a new device or when you need to temporarily log in on someone else's phone. Hmm. That sounds delicious. What if you ever have less than one? Well, then you're going to enter into account recovery, just like you are if you lose your password. Account recovery. I mean, if in setting up a, a new site for the first time. If you only well, if you're signing up for a new account, then you're proving your authentication, so no problem. Okay. The problem is if you if you are an existing user trying to get on again and you've lost access to all of your previous authenticated okay. mechanisms, that's when you have a problem, which is the, which is the I forgot my password problem. Right. 
And that's only solvable through a password recovery process. And that is a whole other can of worms. <laughs> Don't do that. Right. FIDO2 is not utopia. <laughs> it's just really useful tech that's going to make our lives better. So can we have it now? Uh, yes-ish. <laughs> uh, it is supported on Windows 10 today. Uh-huh. If you're on a, I think you have to be on the preview version, actually. But I, I believe it's coming in the fall update or else it just came in the spring update. One of those two things is true. It's either just arrived or it's going to arrive in the fall. Hmm. And for Mac and iOS users, it's coming with iOS 13 slash Mac OS Catalina. Oh, yay. So everybody gets to so, play. Pretty much everyone running a modern OS is going to be playing by the end of the year. So for a normal person, can you envision what they're going to need to know and learn in order to do this? The way I would see it working is you would go to, I think apps are going to make use of it first. So you download some sort of app and it will then say, would you like to enable passwordless authentication? If so, touch your face here. Sorry, touch your (laughs) finger here or look at this. Touch your face here. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) It will then do all the crypto. The end user will have no idea that crypto is done, but what will happen is the device is then authenticated and then the app will just stop pestering them. Oh. Okay. And so the user will feel like they have the zero friction thing, but what's actually going on with the hood is some really nice crypto to make sure that when they're using the app, the service on the other end, you know, the, the, the web service powering that app knows they are who they say they are because they're on a secure device. And the only time they'll be pestered is when they show up on some random internet cafe on their holidays or when they're borrowing their friend's phone or when they've bought a new phone. They'll have to prove themselves once and then it'll all be fine. And then that will slowly, I think the first place we'll start to see it is places like GitHub, Google are going to be very quick to the game, Microsoft are going to be quick to the game. So in a corporate setting, you're definitely, definitely going to start to see this kind of stuff. Because Microsoft are implementing this similar functionality through their own custom apps at the moment. So the experience is much less seamless because you're not getting it from the OS, you're getting it from the Microsoft Authenticator app, which means you have to install an app and then jump through hoops the app wants you to jump through, and then you're relying on the app to do this work that really the OS should be doing for you, and the OS will be doing for you when we move to OS-level support for FIDO2. Okay. Wow. And another common one will be things like, once you've set it up that your watch is a trusted device, then you will go to use an internet cafe to log into your Outlook for work, and it will just tap you on the wrist and go, hey, there's someone trying to log in from Brussels. Is that you? You go, yes, because the watch is fully authenticated. They know that it really is you who said yes, and then they let the browser session in. Wow. I know you say this isn't utopia. It sounds pretty close, though, Bart. Sounds pretty amazing. Right. Absolutely. It's fantastic, but it doesn't it doesn't solve all problems instantly. There are still going to be passwords probably for quite some time, because we're not going to feel comfortable without one. The mm-hmm. idea that Microsoft can say, no, 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 there is no password on your account. It's only trusted devices. Would you be comfortable? I, I'm driving a car that drives itself. No, I wouldn't. <laughs> right. Now, I think we will be five years from now, but I don't think we're there yet. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing is we're still in the, we still have the problem of I have lost my devices, all of them. I've had a terrible fire, something gone horribly wrong. Now we're into I have to phone support and I somehow have to convince support I am who I say I am. Mm-hmm. And what if that process is spoofable, right? This does right. nothing to address the squishy organic bit. Right, right. So it's not utopia, but it's darn cool. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, it sounds fantastic. So um, I, I'm excited to hear it's actually finally coming here. That's I mean, I've just heard the mumbling of Fido, no passwords. And it's like, ah, that's poppycock. That can't be real. <laughs> it's it's almost here. It's I mean, that's why I talked about it in March, because in March we, we had announcements that it was coming. Mm-hmm. And that's really coming to pass now. Since WWDC, I'm much more excited because Apple nailed their colors to the mask at WWDC and said they were doing it. Very cool. Very cool. Well, hey, I appreciate you coming in and uh, sneaking in a little episode here to uh, to help flesh out the show for the week while I'm going to be gone yet again. <laughs> <laughs> Your jet-setting lifestyle, Allison. It's really gotten out of control. All right, Bart. Well, anyway, I appreciate you coming in. I'm not sure what the sign-off is for this one. Oh, yeah, I bet it I know what well, it I is. I think we should remind people anyway, right? It doesn't matter what the excuse is. <laughs> stay patched so you stay secure. Well, that's going to wind us up for this week. I want to give a special thanks again to uh, Bart and Shane and Frank Petrie twice and uh, Raleigh and Tom Merritt for their assistance in allowing me to have a super fun vacation. Don't forget to send your gem questions, comments, and suggestions by emailing me at allison at podfeet.com and follow me on Twitter at podfeet. Remember, anything you need to do starts with podfeet.com. If you want to become a Patreon like, like Frank told you, you should be podfeet.com slash Patreon. Want to join our Facebook group and talk to other no-seller castaways? Podfeet.com slash Facebook. Want to join our Slack community where we talk about programming by stealth and security bits and other super nerdy stuff? Podfeet.com slash Slack. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, we will have a live show next week. Head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.